Word of the Lord. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a, roar, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it, and do not write it down. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and uh, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word uh, that we have a place in this world where we know that these words are true. They are faithful. They are beautiful. They are good. And uh, Lord, we see how deeply we need your truth in our lives and so we pray that you would speak to us, you'd explain these words, and that um, our hearts would respond with love, that we would love your truth, not only believe it in our minds, but we would treasure it in our hearts. And so send your Holy Spirit, be our teacher now as we give our minds to your holy word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we are in the 10th the chapter of uh, Revelation, which is uh, a, a portion of the book of Revelation called the Seven Trumpets. And uh, earlier in Revelation, there were seven uh, seals that we looked at earlier in the summer. And the sixth of the seventh seal was the longest of the seals. And now we're in the, in the sixth trumpet, which is also the longest of the trumpets. Is, uh, Revelation 10 is a part of the, the sixth trumpet. And I just read this passage to you, and you probably say, what's this about? What is this about, what we just read? And the answer is, Revelation 10 is a vision of Jesus Christ. And actually, the book of Revelation, the very first words of Revelation says that this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It, that's what Revelation is about, is it's opening up for us who is Jesus, and we're discovering who he is with all these incredible images. And, and, um, and uh, in this passage, it gives an, us an amazing picture of Jesus as this giant angel who has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. And he's 
roaring like a lion. I love this picture of giant angel um, Jesus. And over the past few chapters, uh, we've had all these images of, of kind of the world falling apart. And in the midst of that unraveling of the culture and the world around the early Christians in the first century, Revelation gives them this epic picture of their king, the majesty of their king. And so uh, that's our topic today. What does Revelation tell us about Jesus? And there's three answers that I want to point out for us from uh, Revelation 10. And this is what they are. That Jesus approaches us as our mediator. Jesus holds us as our promise keeper. And Jesus transforms us as our food. Jesus approaches us as our mediator. Jesus holds us as our promise keeper. And Jesus transforms us as our food. So he approaches us and then he holds us and he transforms us. It's a really powerful, simple picture of what it means to be a Christian, of what the Christian life is. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you say, what does it mean to be a Christian? This is a, this is a great summary. That God approaches you, he holds you, and he transforms you. That's what we have here in Revelation 10. So uh, three points for us in, in really vivid images. So three points, and the first is this. Jesus approaches us as our mediator. Jesus approaches us as our mediator. Now, what's a mediator? Well, I, I think the common usage of the, a mediator is, pro, is really helpful for this. A mediator is someone where you have two people who are in a conflict, and they call someone in to say, hey, can you know, as a marriage is in a conflict, and they call in maybe a counselor or something, and you say, can you help us sort out this conflict? Can you bridge the gap in this relationship and bring us together? And what the Bible says is that God and humanity are at war with each other. We are in a conflict with, uh, with God. Uh, God is our creator. He made us. And we've said to God, you know, I don't need you in my life. I know how to live my life fine. And I want to be my own God. And so the Bible says that our minds are hot, by nature are hostile towards God. And maybe some of you have felt that hostility in your mind towards God. Or you say, God, I'm not going to put my life in your hands. You, you want to harm me. And I want my life to be my own life. And that may be something that you've said before you were a Christian. And maybe thoughts like that, the kind of distrust of God in our hearts, is something you still, we all feel somewhat as Christians as well. Well, the image in this passage is of an angel that's coming down from heaven to earth. You see that there in verse 1, how it says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And actually, this angel is the first of many things that will descend from heaven to earth in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation ends with the heavenly Jerusalem coming down at, at, you know, the, begin, at the new creation where he heaven and earth will be married together. That's the whole movement of Revelation is heaven is coming down to earth. And uh, what's happening here is God is approaching us. He's coming near to us. And I'll tell you what this is like. You know, you know when you're in a fight with someone, you're in a conflict, maybe with a friend or, or with a spouse, and um, one of the people in the conflict decides, you know, I'm going to go talk to the person. I'm going to approach them. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be humble. And I want to try to make things right and, and mend things. And uh, there's a, a marriage therapist, John Gottman, who calls this act of approaching someone a repair attempt. And it's one of the most important moments in a marriage 
when one partner makes a repair attempt. And he says that actually he's observed thousands of marriages. And he says that one of the greatest predictors of whether two people will still be married in five years is what happens when one person makes a repair attempt. And so, for example, you might have a spouse who, who says, hey, when I said that earlier, uh, that was really selfish. And I wish I hadn't said it. I'm sorry. That's a repair attempt. What happens in response to the repair attempt? You know, if the person says, yeah, well, you, that's what you always do. That's a hard, that's not a receiving of the repair attempt. It's a hardening. It's a, it's a throwing it back in your face. Or is there a soft response to the repair attempt that says, thanks for saying that. All right, I'm sorry how I responded as well. And, I, you know, I said things I shouldn't have said also. I'm receiving the, the that response to the repair attempt is the most important thing in the relationship. And what's happening is when Jesus comes down to humanity, he's approaching, it's, it's God's repair attempt. It's God coming near to us, humble. You know, you look at Jesus, he's healing people, and he's forgiving people. He says, listen, I'll come. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can come to me. You can eat with me. And he's saying, God wants to have peace with you. And, uh, and so God has sent his own son as a mediator. And the biggest question is, Will your response to the mediator, the repair attempt, be soft or hard? And uh, in a marriage, you know, if you call in a mediator, you say, we need some help from a mediator, and you don't trust the mediator. You don't cooperate with the mediator. You're not going to make any progress in the relationship. And it's the same with God. If we want to deepen our relationship with God, we have to cooperate with the mediator who's been sent to us, who is Jesus, God's own son. And that's why Christians say that if you're going to have a relationship with God, it has to be through Jesus Christ. You can't just have a relationship with God your own way. God is saying, this is, this is my olive branch. And are you going to receive it, what he offers you? And if you harden yourself and say, I'm not open, you cannot know your creator. Jesus is how God is approaching us with an offer of peace. Now, as you read Revelation 10... Uh, some of you might wonder, okay, how do you know the giant angel is Jesus? And uh, that's a good question. Let me just point out a few of the details about the giant angel, okay? Look at verse 1. It says he's wrapped in a cloud. Jesus ascended to heaven in a cloud. You know, the Son of Man go, comes into heaven riding on a cloud. It says there's a rainbow over his head. In Revelation 4, there was a rainbow around God's throne. The rainbow is from, you know, uh, God's covenant. That's a, the sign of God's covenant. It says his face shone like the sun. In Revelation 1, Jesus is the one whose face shone like the sun. In the, the Gospels, Jesus was transfigured before his disciples and his face shone like the sun. And then in verse 2, it says... He had a little scroll. If you go back to Revelation 5, Jesus, who's the Lamb of God, has the scroll in his hand. And then it says, and he set his foot, his right foot on the sea. In the Bible, who's the one who walks on the sea? Well, in the Old Testament, it's, it's the Lord. And in the New Testament, it's Jesus. He's the one who walks on water because he is the Lord who, who has mastery over the seas. And then in verse 3, it says, And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. Jesus was called just a few chapters ago the lion of the tribe of Judah. All of these details are pointing this giant angel is Christ himself. And all of these signs say, uh, uh, and, and the fact that Jesus is a giant, and he's bridging heaven and earth together, confirms the first thing that we learn about Jesus is that he is the mediator between God and man. He's how humans have a relationship with God. 
And, you know, by the way, I'll, I'll say it's not only that Jesus is the mediator between God and humanity, but Jesus is also making peace with humans, helping humans be reconciled to each other. You know, for example, this giant, he's got one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. What is that talking about? Well, in the Bible, the sea represents all the nations of the world, and the land, the people of the land, are, are the, the Jews, the Israelites. And Jesus is basically saying, I'm taking all the ethnic groups of the world, and I'm bringing them together. They've been at war with each other. I'm going to make peace. And even to this day, you can go to every language, every, you know, tribe and culture, and you will find people on every continent who love Jesus. And Jesus even can come into friendships. He can come into marriages and makes peace of those who are at war with one another. And in fact, Colossians 1 puts it this way. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This peace and reconciliation is exactly why Jesus has come. He is the mediator who binds the broken relationships between God and man and with humans and each other. So, God, so first, Jesus approaches us. He comes to us as God's uh, repair attempt, as uh, the only mediator between God and man. But there's a second thing we learn about Jesus in this passage. Okay, Jesus approaches us as, the, as our mediator. But second, Jesus holds us as our promise keeper. Jesus holds us as our promise keeper. And another thing about how broken relationships are restored is that broken relationships often feel very fragile. You know, if you've been in a relationship where there's been a lot of trust lost, even as you're working through it, it kind of feels like just the slightest move can kind of set things back in, in the relationship. And, you know, if someone's hurt you, you might think, like, how am I ever going to trust this person again? And God knows that our relationship with him could be very fragile. You know, even after you become a Christian, you have all these sins in your life that you're still working through. And, you, and some of you might feel that way. My sins constantly feel like they're unsettling the relationship that I have with God. Well, the Bible's answer to that is God's promise. Or the word that the Bible uses is the covenant. And you know in this passage when it talks about the rainbow, the rainbow is God's covenant with, uh, with Noah where God promised to humanity, I'm not going to destroy humanity, I'm going to wait for them to turn to me and to be, experience my redemption. So it's God's patience in his promise and in his covenant. And it's like in a marriage, what holds a husband and wife together through the rough patches of marriage is the promise that says, I'm never going to leave you. And those vows, you know, even in a marriage, you have, you know, the emotions go up and down and you have good seasons and you have hard seasons, good years and bad years. And you say, you know, are we making progress? Are we getting closer? The, the, all these things are changing in the relationship. The thing that doesn't move is the covenant. The, the, the promise is what keeps things stable. And you'll notice in this passage the message of swearing an oath. Look at verse 5. How it says, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. I just think this is an incredible picture. You have giant angel Jesus <laughs> with his feet on the sea and the lands, and he's raising his hands, making the, binding himself in a promise to us. Binding himself in a promise to God first, that he will do all of God's promises. And that in turn becomes a promise to us, that he will be faithful to what he does. It's an incredible image. 
And, you know, some commentators have thought that this is an indication that this angel is not Jesus because how could Jesus swear to God when Jesus is God? You know, he says you couldn't have God swearing to himself. But actually in Hebrews chapter 6, that's exactly what Hebrews 6 says. Listen to these words. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Jesus is showing himself in this verse to be the God who is the promise-making God. He's the one who holds us as our promise keeper. Now, the whole idea of promise is such an important part of our spiritual lives. It is how, if you want to grow as a Christian, maturity as a Christian really means coming to trust more consistently and deeply in God's promises and believing that they're really true and living in light of those promises. So let me give you a couple examples of, you know, what are some promises that God make and how would that shape your life? So, for example, Jesus says that if you're one of his people and you just simply ask him for the Holy Spirit, he will give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's wisdom. The Holy Spirit gives you love and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and truth speaking. And so it, let's say you're having a conflict with someone and you say, I know I need to have a conversation with that person. And I don't want to have a conversation because I don't know how the conversation is going to go. And I'm, I, I have things I need to say to them, but I know I need to be humble and I need to hear them. And I don't know how it's go. And our flesh does not want to have that conversation. You know, we either want to go into the conversation and give someone a piece of our mind or we want to avoid it altogether. And so Jesus says, ask for my Holy Spirit. I promise my spirit will put words in your mouth. I promise that I will give you humility and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness. Um, and I will also enable you to say the truth that you need to speak, the true things you need to say. And when you have that promise, you can actually go into that conversation and have both humility and confidence. Both of those things. This is a very practical promise. And he, I assure you, he will give you that spirit. Or take another promise. Uh, the Bible tells us that if you are called by God and you are loved by him, whatever trial you face in this life, whatever trial you are walking through right now, has been appointed and planned by God for your good. God has very deep purposes that he wants in your life. And he wants to prepare you for glory. He wants to make you far wiser, far more loving than you would have ever asked to become or thought you could ever be. And he promises that he is going to do that through trials that he has planned for your life. Are you willing to believe that promise? That God is sovereign over all of your suffering and he is only good. He is only loving. If you believe that, it's immensely practical. You're going to stay in the suffering and in the trial. You're not going to run away from it. You're going to believe God is here in the midst of it. These are the deepest, most mature things in the Christian life, and they only come from believing in God's promises. That's what Christian maturity is. And all of God's promises are yes to you in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who holds you and fulfills all of God's promises. And you live by God's promises when you rest your life in Jesus' hands. 
Now, if Jesus fulfills all of God's promises, well, what are the promises specifically in this passage in Revelation 10? Well, you can see it there in verse 7, what the promise is. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So the promise in this passage is the mystery of God. And you might say, what, what is the mystery of God? And well, Ephesians 3 summarizes it well. This is what it says. This mystery is that the Gentiles, that's all the nations of the world, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And so what he's saying, you know, when Jesus raises his hand and there are these early Christians who are suffering, they're being persecuted, Jesus is saying, I, I raise my hand and I swear that the nations will be drawn in and come to me and love me. And it, you feel so small in the Roman Empire. The Romans are persecuting you and the Jews are persecuting, persecuting you and you feel so powerless. I promise you that I will fulfill my purpose, my mission in the world. This is the mystery of God. And so what we learn about Jesus in this passage is, is first that Jesus is the mediator restoring our, our broken relationship with our creator. And we have to cooperate with the mediator if we want to have a relationship with God. And that second, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And he's the one who holds us in covenant security with God. And the main promise in this passage is the mystery that all the diverse nations of the world, including the people of Bellingham and Whatcom County. We are in the you know, distant corner of the world from these first Christians. On the other side of the planet, will come to know him. He will draw them to himself. But there's one other issue about our relationship with God. Because it's one thing, you know, God, Jesus approaches us. Jesus holds us. And yet we're still sinful. We still resist the Lord. We still don't trust in him. And we still disobey him. And so, there, so there's something that needs to happen in us. It's not only what God does, but something that needs to happen in us. And this is really the third thing we see in this passage is that Jesus transforms us as our food. Jesus transforms us as our food. And I know that's a weird way to say it, but I'll explain it as we look at this passage. You'll notice the next thing that happens in this passage in, in verse 8. It says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go... Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea and on the land. Now, this is the same scroll that was mentioned a few chapters ago uh, in Revelation that had seven seals. And you need to break the seven seals in order, in order to look in the scroll and to find out what's there. And so you think, oh, the seven seals were broken. And so we're, John is going to open the scroll and he's going to read it. Well, that's not what happens. He doesn't read the scroll. And instead, I want to point out two things that happen, okay? The first is the book becomes a part of his body. In this passage, the book becomes a part of his body. I, I think this is a fascinating thought. You see what it says next in verse 9. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. So instead of reading the scroll, he eats the scroll. And again, actually, this is another evidence that this angel is Jesus because who's the only other person in the Bible who says, take and eat? That's what Jesus says at the Lord's table, these exact words, take and eat. And what 
John is doing in this scene is he is eating the word of God. And that's how Jesus talks, quoting Deuteronomy in the, in the Gospels. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are, God's word is our food. And uh, theologians have said that the Lord's Supper, what we do every week here, this is a visible gospel. You're eating God's truth every week when you come to this table. And, uh, you know, during the sermon, you take God's word into your ears. But at the Lord's Supper, you take God's word into your mouth and into your body. And why is it important that the book becomes a part of our body? Well, this is, this is something I've been thinking a lot about uh, recently. I'll try to explain this thought. Um, you know, the Bible says that our bodies or our flesh are born with a disposition to not trust God and, and, and really to do our own thing in life. And then, and then we come into the world already with that nature. Like our brains are structured that way. Our nervous systems, our bodies, our flesh are encoded with sin. And then, you know, we're mistreated in our childhood. We have good things. We have bad things that happen to us. We make choices in our lives over and over again that affect our bodies and the very structure of how our bodies act. And so you might have, you know, an addiction to alcohol, an addiction to pornography. And you realize it's not just a matter of your will. There's more you can feel that's at play with you. Your brain, your body is formed into a pattern that is disposed to act and to feel and to think and to speak into certain ways. And for some of you, this has been very hopeless. You know, you felt hopeless about that because you say, it doesn't seem to matter how hard I will this thing. I keep acting this way. And, uh, you know, my body instinctually is lustful or anxious. Well, one of the most amazing discoveries of, of modern neuroscience, which actually Christian theologians have been saying for centuries is that your body is plastic. And your body being plastic, this means that even though your brain hardens into certain ways of acting and thinking, it can be remolded and shaped like plastic can. That's actually how God has made our bodies. They can be transformed. And so when you come here every week, that's what's happening, not just to your soul, but to your whole person. When you hear God's word and you sit among other people who believe these things, when you hear people praising God and you say, my body is hearing these sounds, that there is a good God who made us and loves us. He is worthy of praise. And when you approach this table and when you eat and you believe Jesus is, has come into my person and lives inside of me. Um, and then, you know, when you sign up, we're, uh, Matt, we'll talk about after the service. that We, we have uh, home groups and discipleship groups, small intimate groups of relationships of people who begin to know each other, hear each other's sins, encourage one another. What, what's happening in all of these things are you are having new experiences in your life. Just as in your childhood, certain experiences or certain sins that you've done have kind of hardwired your brain, God is giving your body new experiences that are reforming and giving a new shape and pattern to your soul and to your body, every part of who you are. This is an incredible hope. Jesus is the food that transforms us. His book is becoming the very shape of our bodies. And I want to point out what it says here. You know, it's really these interesting words in verse 10. Where it says, And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. 
It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. I don't have time to explain everything about what's happening in that verse, but one of the things that struck me about it is that when God's book becomes the shape of your body, you're going to have both experiences of sweetness and bitterness in the process. And oftentimes the first experience, you know, he said when it's in his mouth, it was sweet, but when it got way down deep into him is when it became bitter. And often, you know, many times people, right, when they become Christians, they come and they hear about the love of Jesus and they're like, wow, God loves me. God forgives my sins. And I, I you know, I, I feel so alive. I feel loved by his people. And then almost immediately after they're baptized or believe in the Lord, they come into trials. Or some of you have felt that way where you have seasons where it's like it felt so good to be a Christian and then so much of my Christian life has actually felt like bitterness. These hardships way deep inside of me. This, this is part of the process is both sweetness and bitterness. And actually, C.S. Lewis says this somewhere, that this is how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. You know, most of us, when we think of the Holy Spirit's working, it's when, you know, a beautiful praise song, you know, worship song is playing and we get goosebumps and I say, I felt God's presence was there. And C.S. Lewis says, that's not the real gift. That's kind of the card on the gift, you know, to tell you, hey, God's here and he loves you. But often the real gift is in those hardest years where you continued to walk with God and trusted him even though there were great trials that he brought into your life. And I know that's a hard thing to hear, but I guarantee you there are countless stories in this room where people would say, I don't want to say that that's true, but I know in my own life the deepest change that's happened in my life. I know that in my own life. The deepest change that's happened in my life is in the years that hurt the most. That's when the Holy Spirit is most at work. Jesus is transforming us as our food. His word is coming into us, and the book of the gospel becomes the very shape of our body. And after that happens, a second thing that we see in this passage is that then your body becomes a part of God's mission. Your body then becomes a part of God's mission. And this scene, you know, where John eats the scroll, it's very similar to a scene in the Old Testament where Ezekiel, he also eats the scroll. And what's happening in this passage is the apostle John is becoming a prophet. You see that there in verse 11 where it says, And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So John eats the scroll so that he becomes like this living book. And God says, you know what? I don't want to send out books to people. I want to send you out to people. That's the exact same with us. God's taking his book and weaving it into your soul and body and mind, your emotions, your thoughts, your actions, your speech, everything you do. And then he's sending your body out from here into your families, into your workplaces, into your neighborhoods, into your relationships. And God does not want to fill the world with books. He does do that, actually. But even more, he wants to fill the world with people who've been shaped by the book. And that becomes your mission. That's God's plan. Your body is now becomes a part of God's mission. And when you go out into the world, you tell the story, not just quoting Bible verses, but saying how those Bible verses were about I was hostile towards God and I thought I could live my own life and run my own life and I realized how foolish I was. And Jesus came to me, he sent people to me and he drew me in and he loved me and he welcomed me. And then he made these promises to me and he's just held on to me. Even my many sins, even as a Christian later, he still holds on to me and I've seen over the years 
such deep and profound change as his word has come into me and I've been among his people. My life is different. That's the message that Jesus is sending us all out into the world to share with people. It's a story that says I was at war with God, but he approached me. He sent his son as a mediator, as a repair attempt. And even though I struggle with sin every day, he holds me with his promise. And what's amazing is that even some of the deepest things about me that I thought could never be changed, Jesus is transforming as I bring his book, his gospel into my body. And now, amazingly, I get to serve him. This incredible story that's true of all of our lives. And this great giant, Jesus, with his hand foot on the sea and his foot on the land with his hand in the air, swearing by the God of heaven, this will be true. Trust in him today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the great story of love that we read in your scriptures. And uh, we pray that the story of the gospel would, would hit our hearts and our our minds, like, like Revelation 10, that Jesus would be a giant to us. That Jesus would be the great promise keeper who has come to us. That we would believe that your word and your spirit are coming into us and shaping and changing things that seem so deeply ingrained that they could never be different. And yet in him, they can and so, Lord, uh, we trust you, we love you, we thank you for these great promises. Send us out from here that we might bring the story of your grace to all that we meet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.